Hi, welcome to Law School Success Stories. I'm your host, Wes Kramer. And we're brought to you by OutlineSuccess.com, the digital marketplace where you can buy and sell law school outlines for cash. At OutlineSuccess.com, you can also buy digital resumes that have all kinds of graphic effects that are sure to set you apart and get you noticed by hiring managers. Go to OutlineSuccess.com today to buy and sell outlines and pick up an effective digital resume. Welcome to the Law School Success Stories podcast. I'm your host, Wes Kramer, and today we've got a great one for you. We've got Professor Eric Siegel, who is a professor of constitutional law at Georgia State University. Professor Siegel has been published all over the place. He is a fantastic guest, and we had an amazing conversation about constitutional law. Just really quickly, I want to go over some of the places he's been published, and then we'll dive into the conversation. Professor Siegel is the author of the books Originalism as Faith and Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Why Its Justices Are Not Judges. He's got articles on constitutional law that have appeared in, among others, the Harvard Law Review Forum, Stanford Law Review Online, UCLA Law Review, George Washington Law Review, Washington University Law Review, the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law, the Northwestern University Law Review Colloquy, Colloquy I'm probably saying that one wrong, Constitutional Commentary, among and many others. Siegel's op-eds and essays have appeared in the New York Times, LA Times, The Atlantic, Slate, Vox, Salon, and The Daily Beast, among others. He's also appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and France 24, and all four of Atlanta's local television stations. Okay, now with all of that said, let's dive into the conversation. Here we go. Your resume and credentials are impeccable and uh, very, very impressive, so I'm just so grateful that you are taking the time to be on uh, this humble little podcast. Um, so, uh, Professor Siegel, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to this program. Well, that's all way too kind, and I really appreciate it, and thank you for having me. <laughs> so, the, the theme of this podcast is um, law school success stories, and I think that can extend very much so to legal success stories in general. Um, one of the things I love about the podcasting medium is that it can be... Um, uh, uh, it can be whatever we want it to be. Um, and so I, we connected on Twitter. I, uh, saw your tweets. I really, you know, uh, align with a lot of the, you know, morals that you espouse in them. And I invited you on the program and you were gracious enough to say yes. So, um, I'd love to just cue you up by saying, uh, tell us a, uh, a success story, legal, uh, law school or otherwise that you've had. Well, I'm not sure it's a success story as much as it's, I think kind of a, a uh, key moment in, in my in my professional career. Um, and I think it does tell us a lot about Justice Scalia. And I have been writing recently about how enraged I am that there's a law school named after Justice Scalia, that Harvard has a named chair um, for, uh, named after this man um, who does not deserve to be honored in any way. But that's not the theme of this uh, of this <laughs> podcast. Um, I, I couldn't so agree is, with you more about that. I mean, he he said horrible things in a, I, I'll give him that he was a good writer. So he said horrible things in an elegant manner is the nicest thing I'll ever say about him. But, oh, what a. Yeah, I would say, I mean, he had a great, 
he was a great, great writer in the sense of being able to say exactly what he meant in entertaining language in as few words as possible, which is a great skill. Make no mistake about it. Um, I would, I'm actually more concerned about not his votes because Alito and Thomas and Rehnquist and others voted the same way he did, you know, 99% of the time on issues involving race, gender, LGBTQ and religion. The difference is Scalia's rhetoric, not just in his dissenting opinions, which we all know was very overheated, but even at oral arguments and off the bench, his, and I'm just going to say it, his racism, sexism, homophobia, and pro-Christian bias came through consistently throughout his career. But that's a serious subject. I have a more light subject to talk about involving Justice Scalia that I think is kind of a funny story and one that I do think is wrapped up in my, um, you know, somewhat happy legal, you call it successful, I call it happy uh, law professor career. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds fantastic. So so it's kind of a long story, so I hope your audience will bear with me. It begins by noting that uh, the American Bar Association, which of course is a big regulator of American law schools and a big presence in the American legal system, the American Bar Association has a number of different sections. I don't know, 30, 40, a lot of them, including a civil rights section. It does not have a general constitutional law section, which is very odd. We have a president who was a constitutional law scholar recently, and it wasn't the previous guy. (laughs) Yeah, at least at least a constitutional law professor. I'm not sure about a constitutional law scholar. But in any event, um, so uh, somebody, a, a, a very prominent lawyer in Atlanta decided that Georgia should have a local constitutional law section of its bar association. Uh, Now, this person happened to be very conservative um, and someone I respect a lot and did a great job in deciding that we're going to have a con law section here in Georgia. And to uh, to begin the celebration of that idea, he asked law professors at various Georgia law schools like Emory and University of Georgia and Georgia State to help him plan a week-long constitutional law conference back, I want to say 2015 or so, I'd have to go back and check my dates, but five, you know, six, seven years ago. And I ended up playing a very substantial role in creating that week, which to this day is the most uh, impressive con law conference I've ever been to in my life because this guy had a lot of money and we had a lot of good people working on it. So we did abortion. We did, you know, we did guns. We, we did everything. Um, I personally hosted a panel with Sandy Levinson and Adam Winkler, um, two of the leading gun experts in the country, um, and a professor from the now Anton Scalia School of Law. And I'm forgetting his name. I apologize. But he's also really prominent. Anyway, it was, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of major events. Mm-hmm. It was going to be capped off with on Friday. Uh, I arranged I'm pretty close to Judge retired Judge Richard Posner, as people who know me know. So I arranged for Posner to, to, to teleconference in with uh, Judge Kaczynski, who at the time was considered one of the leading lower court judges in the country, moderated by the Supreme Court reporter Adam Liptak. That was going to be Friday morning. And then right after that, to end the week, Justice Scalia had agreed to come to Atlanta and uh, give a talk and answer questions. In addition, there was a reception for Justice Scalia at the governor's mansion the night before that Thursday. I was at that reception. He, He was very nice and couldn't have been any classier than he was. 
So how does this story involve me? Well, I was uh, moderating and having a substantive role in this gun Second Amendment panel on Thursday morning. And there were rumors that Justice Scalia was going to attend that panel. We didn't know. We weren't sure exactly when he was coming. But his people had said he may, in fact, come the day before and attend the gun panel. This made me very nervous because I am a huge critic of the Heller decision. I'm not, I'm actually a critic of Stevens's decision too, but I'm a bigger critic of Scalia's decision. And I had prepared a presentation that was particularly scathing about that opinion. <laughs> and I was nervous about doing that with Justice Scalia sitting in the front row, which we were told, in fact, might be happening. Oh, so <laughs> on Tuesday night of that week, that my gun thing was Thursday. Scalia was going to talk on Friday. The reception was Thursday night. On Tuesday of that week, my my best friend, my college roommate from 40 years ago, and someone who has known me forever, I presented this problem to him. He's a lawyer. What do I do if Scalia is in the front row and I want to totally suggest that his Heller opinion is one of the worst Supreme Court opinions ever written on the basis of text, history, and everything else? <laughs> and so we talked. So we talked about that a little bit, and with my my best friend and I. And at the end, he said, "Eric." And at the end, I said, "Look, um, I'm actually, you know, kind of hoping he doesn't show up because it'll make it harder." Um, and, and my friend said, "It doesn't matter whether he shows up or not at that panel." And I said, "Why are you saying that?" He said, "Because it is your karma in life that you and he." He knew how much I disliked Scalia. You and he will have a confrontation during this week. And I said, no, we won't. What are you talking about? First of all, I am not going to confront Justice Scalia under any circumstances. Um, second of all, I don't plan on engaging with Justice Scalia. Um, and if he doesn't come to that panel, I'm going to have no contact with Justice Scalia other than perhaps shaking his hand at the you know reception like before um, and not doing anything hostile. I wouldn't do that. It's not professional. He said, Eric, you will have a confrontation with Scalia. It's going to happen. Nothing can stop it. And I teased him and said, you're being an idiot and hung up the phone. (laughs) So Thursday morning comes and goes. Scalia does not show up at the gun panel. So I am free to critique Heller in my usual way, which I did. Um, It was an excellent panel, I think. Um, The whole week was excellent. Um, And uh, that night I did shake Scalia's hand at the reception. That's all I did. Didn't stay very long. I hate receptions. Um, Friday morning comes. I personally had arranged for Judge Posner to come. The Posner-Kaczynski, by technology, the Posner-Kaczynski panel with Adam Liptak was excellent. The crowd really enjoyed it. Before that panel that morning, the person I mentioned who had who, whose idea this conference was and who raised all the money for this conference, which, by the way, included Erwin Chemerinsky, Richard Epstein. I mean, it's just all the, all the big con, Akhil Lamar, as I said, um, uh, all the big name con law people were there. In any event, um, he came to me Friday morning uh, before the Posner-Kaczynski panel and said, we're collecting questions from the audience to ask Justice Scalia, which is how it was always done. We've had many Supreme Court justices at Georgia State. We want students to ask questions, but we always filter the questions. It's just something that law schools do. Right or wrong is what law schools do. So so we were going to collect questions from the audience (laughs) that, that morning. And um, he asked me to give him a question 
that was good just in case he didn't get good enough questions from the audience. So I wrote out a question on the notepad. I gave it to him. It's the last I thought of it. Posner and Kaczynski do their panel. They sit down. We take a short break. I'm now sitting in the front row right next to Adam Liptak of the New York Times. I had been very present during the conference, so I had no intention of being involved in any way in the Justice Scalia event. Um, Justice Scalia comes up to the stage, is introduced by the moderator, the head of the conference, and he does, he did his typical thing that Scalia did all over the country, ranting and raving that the Constitution is dead, 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 um, and making all of his hypocritical statements about text and history, which he didn't live by when he voted, and that was his typical canned speech. And then he asked for questions from the audience. So the moderator goes back up to the stage and asks the first couple of questions. And to Scalia's credit, he said, those are silly softball questions. And they were. They were questions like, you know, I don't know, I don't remember. They were really silly kind of softball questions. And Scalia didn't like them. And so to his credit, he turned to them. There were 500 people in the audience, not just my students, but faculty from all four Georgia law schools and hundreds of lawyers. And because Atlanta is still a fairly small city in terms of the legal world, I'm, you know, reasonably well known in the community. And it's reasonably well known that Justice Scalia and I uh, don't see eye to eye on many, many things because I've written a dozen things about that. So anyway... Scalia says to the moderator, give me a real question, God damn it. Oh, he didn't say God damn it, but something like that. <laughs> so the moderator shuffles the index cards and, of course, picks out my question. Uh-oh. <laughs> which was, which was, Justice Scalia, you are a self, um, I forgot how I put it, self, um, you, you, you consider yourself an originalist. Yet in Shelby County versus Holder, you signed on to a principle of equal state sovereignty that has no basis in the text of the Constitution, it's not mentioned, and is absolutely inconsistent with the original meaning of the Reconstruction Amendments, which of course were to bring the Southern states into the country under terms where they would agree to treat the newly freed slaves in an equal manner. Um, and the, the whole purpose of the Reconstruction Amendments was to treat Southern states differently than other, than other states, yet, in Shelby County versus Holder, the court used this equal state sovereignty doctrine to strike down parts of the Voting Rights Act. So he reads that question, and Scalia gets visibly upset, <laughs> turns to the moderator, and says, Well, that, oh, none of that is true. I want to know who asked that question. <laughs> I'm sitting in the front row. I make eye contact with the moderator. He makes eye contact with me. As I said, I was really trying to lay low during this part of the program. So I don't stand up or anything. Scalia pauses and then repeats, I want to know who in this audience asked that question. Stand up. <laughs> so, the, so the moderator looks at me and, he, and with his hand, he kind of motions me to stand up. So I stand up and I say, uh, Justice Scalia, I asked that question. I'm a law professor at Georgia State. Um, thank you for being here. I really appreciate, you know, you, you coming to, 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 to be the, the final event of this great week-long conference. Um, yes, I asked that question. And Scalia says, Shelby County versus Holder was about the irrationality of using an old formula. It had nothing to do with equal state sovereignty. Now, one minute before he said that, 
I would have bet my life that Shelby County versus Holder on two occasions used equal state sovereignty to support his decision. <laughs> but in that post Scalia rant moment, I'm all of a sudden thinking, oh, my God, what if I'm wrong about this? 500, of my, 500 people in Atlanta, including Adam Lipdack of the New York Times, who's sitting right next to me, including Adam Winkler, who was in the audience, who's a famous law professor at UCLA, including all kinds of other people, will think I'm a fool. And I have a moment of doubt. Mm-hmm. And it is the most terrified I've been in my 31-year career. He's a Supreme Court justice, of course. <laughs> and I'm looking down at Adam, who did one of the nicest things any person has ever done for me. Very subtly, he basically batted his eyes in a way to say, of course, Eric, you are correct. <laughs> which, 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 and I trust Adam about the Supreme Court as much as I trust anybody. I think he's wonderful. So that gave me the confidence. So I repeated, Justice Scalia, with all due respect, and again, thanks for being here, on two occasions, at least, in Shelby County, uh, Justice Roberts used this equal state sovereignty principle, which he made up out of whole cloth, and which is inconsistent with what the court said in the Katzenbach case in the 1960s, to support the view that the uh, Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. And without that idea, I think it would have been much harder to write that opinion. To which Scalia says, ah, I didn't say that at all. Next question. <laughs> I, sat, I sat down. <laughs> I looked at Adam. He nodded his head positively towards me. And the day went on. Um, That night, Adam called me on the phone and asked if that session had been taped, you know, videotaped. Mm -hmm. And because the whole whole week was videotaped, Mm -hmm. uh, which is great, actually. You can find Shimerinsky and Epstein debating. You can find Akil Lamar ranting. You can see a gun thing with Sandy Levinson. I mean, it's a great week. Um, but Scalia, as he always did during his life, except when he talked to the Federalist Society, he did not allow that his portion to be videotaped. Mm-hmm. So we had no tape on him. I've never asked Adam this question, but the overwhelming implication I had was that if, in fact, it had been videotaped, then Adam would have written about Scalia's not remembering a year after or two years after at most, I think two years after Shelby County was decided that equal state sovereignty was a major part of that case. Um, I subsequently wrote about that um, for my blog um, and, and, and it comes up every now and then. And every now and then when it comes up and I mention it, Adam Winkler is nice enough. Um, he's again, a very famous law professor at UCLA. In fact, wrote the best book on Second Amendment I think has ever been written. Adam always chimes in on Twitter. Yes, I was there. And yes, that happened. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's a success story or not, but it it um, it did lead me to write an uh, op a, a blog post a few months later, suggesting at the time that both Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg should resign from the court for reasons that I outlined in that blog post. Um, Scalia clearly was not his full hundred percent self, and neither was RBG in those years. Um, so. Uh, that's my success story, if you want to call that a success story. I think being part of that conference, which really was wonderful, being able to personally invite Richard Posner to be there. I personally invited Sandy Levinson and Adam Winkler to be there. Um, you know, I view that as a great success. That sounds like a huge success to me. And um, like <laughs> I, I, I got to read your article on um, uh, the uh 
it, addressing the point that you made about um, the Constitution being alive and kicking rather than dead, yeah. as Scalia said it is, um, yes. and how he off him and Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, say these things, say the Constitution's dead basically only when it's convenient for them. Otherwise, yes. they're... Yeah. Um, that article is in the Washington University Law Review. Um, it's a little bit short. I, I have made that point in that Law Review article, in an article in Wake Forest, on about 10 blog posts, and in my book, Originalism is Faith, which has a whole chapter on how Scalia and Thomas didn't vote any more originalist than any of the liberals on the court. They just say they did. Yeah, and I, I think you see that with um, some elements of the right wing in the United States. Like, for example, you get... Mitch McConnell flip-flopping completely on the debt ceiling limit um, when there's a Republican president versus when there's a uh, Democratic president. It's just about what's convenient for them politically at the moment. Yeah, but I want I do want to say that we expect politicians mm-hmm. to A, be hypocritical, and B, to, um, to, you know, kind of be practical and do the political thing. Mm-hmm. That we, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not defending that. I'm just saying we expect it. And I'm not sure. I'm you know I'm a progressive. I'm a Democrat. Certainly, there's enough blame to go around on both sides uh, in the last you know in my lifetime in terms of hypocrisy when it comes to Republicans and Democrats. We don't expect Supreme Court justices to say very strongly A, B, and C, and then do D. And that's the difference between Scalia, Thomas. Um, for example, it's Scalia and Thomas, for example, and the liberals. People who know me know I'm just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an American hero before she became on the Supreme Court. On the Supreme Court, she voted partisan slash liberal 99% of the time, and no more than Alito and Thomas vote voted, um, and you know, a conservative and GOP. The difference is Thomas and Scalia purport to have a method of decision making that they claim is the one they use, whereas RBG would be much more open-ended about her pluralistic method of decision-making. The degree of hypocrisy is very different, I think, and that makes a difference. Going forward, and I I couldn't agree with you more on that, and I think that's a fair point about expecting it from politicians um, and it being very hypocritical. Um, Going forward, do you think that the uh, new justices are going to um, perhaps continue that horrible Scalia decision? Uh, uh, tradition, pardon me, I misspoke, um, of saying they're doing something in an originalist manner or whatever they want to wrap it up in. So, and then so, just- so, so this is what drives me insane. And actually, I, I have not, I don't know if I've said this publicly, actually. Uh, uh, maybe I have, but if it's, it's been a while. If I haven't, I'm not sure I have. What drives me crazy about the Bostock decision, which is the one where the court five to four held that Title VII, it's not a constitutional decision, but the court held that Title VII applies to, you know, gays and lesbians and, and transgender. Um, and everybody praised Gorsuch for his, quote, you know, uber textualism in that case. No, no. <laughs> and uber textualist could come up with, I think the decision was, was fine. I think the opposite decision would have been just as textualist, maybe more so. Um, Posner wrote the lower court opinion, a lower court opinion on that issue, where he told the truth, which is no one in 1964 thought Title VII was going to apply to gays and lesbians, but they used language that is imprecise and language changes over time. And we have to deal with our world today, not the world back then, which is what Gorsuch did. He just didn't admit it. And the reality is 
somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of America believe gays and lesbians should get equal rights at work. And Gorsuch's decision, I'm sure, was as much influenced by that as anything else. But the key point is, it wasn't any more textualist than Kavanaugh's dissent, which was also, you know, Kavanaugh certainly thought was textualist. We've got to stop throwing these words around. Textualist for statutory interpretation, originalist for constitutional law. Neither one describes what the justices do, and neither one can decide hard cases. And I wish we could stop using that language because it just doesn't mean anything. I remember in law school, those terms got bandied about quite a bit as ways of kind of generalizing um, decision-making processes by these uh, justices. And it seems like a a kind of a shortcut or an easy way out in terms of um, trying to uh, create create the element of the curriculum. Agree, agree a hundred percent. So in the, so in the big cases in the future, Mm -hmm. uh, affirmative action, guns, abortion, campaign finance reform, uh, I don't really talk a lot about the Fourth through Eighth Amendments, so I'll just leave those out of it. Um, in the big con law cases in the future, what's going to drive Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch and Thomas, um, I don't include Alito and Roberts here because they don't really claim to have an overarching, you know, jurisprudential uh, um, approach. I think neither one claims to be a hardcore originalist. Um, they both use originalism when it's convenient, as do the liberals, you know, but it's it's the other ones. It's Barrett and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh um, and Thomas who claim to be originalists. What's going to drive those decisions has nothing to do with text and history and everything to do with their all things considered sense of politics, values and what the court can get away with. So, for example, I have no doubt all four of those justices want to reverse Roe and Casey. They may. They may not. Whatever they decide about Roe and Casey has nothing to do with text and history and everything to do with values, politics and strategy. And um, in that, you know, I made my career making that argument. That's also true for the liberals. That's not I'm not you know, that's just true for the Supreme Court as an institution. And as an aside, if you or I were on the Supreme Court and we had a job for life with unreviewable power, we also would make all things considered decisions in the cases we cared a lot about. Because well, they, we're human beings. Can't they be um, <laughs> impeached, though? No, only for high crimes and misdemeanors. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. In fact, Justice Roberts in Shelby County overturned a prior case by directly misquoting that prior case by using ellipses to take out the part of the quote that was inconsistent with this rule of equal state sovereignty that he adopted. If something less than a high crime or misdemeanor could lead to impeachment, I would think that would be because Justice Ginsburg pointed it out in dissent. It's not debatable. I am not suggesting this is not a matter of opinion. In 1965, in South Carolina versus Katzenbach, the Supreme Court flatly held that states have no right to be treated equally by Congress um, once they're admitted into the union. Before they're admitted to the union, in other words, like Alaska and Hawaii, you know, and all that, and, and, and the other states back in the 19th century, before they were admitted to the union, the court said the terms of being admitted must be equal from state to state. And, I, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But in Katzenbach, the court said that does not apply, period, full stop, to states once they're admitted to the union. Roberts left out that part of the quote 
when he said equal state sovereignty applies to this case. And he used ellipses to leave out that quote. Nothing I just said is debatable. It's not a matter of opinion. Ginsburg said it in dissent and Thomas did not respond. I mean, Roberts did not respond. So if you so the standard for Supreme Court justice is lower than it is for just your regular uh, uh, like injury attorney uh, yes. who would get a bar yes. sanction for something like that. Yes, yes. And in fact, um, the reason I start my con law class with Marbury versus Madison, and in fact, I once engaged in a debate, a written debate with my friend and fantastic scholar Sandy Levinson, who has forgotten more con law than I'll ever know. But he and I once had a debate about whether we should teach Marbury as the first case. He thought we shouldn't. He had very he had a lot of valid reasons for that. I think we should, because if any student wrote the, the, the first half of Marbury versus Madison, they would get an F. Because what Justice Marsh, what the, what the greatest chief justice in history, according to many, wrote in the most important Supreme Court case in history, according to many, um, what he wrote, he, he first of all probably should have recused himself even by the standards of the day. Secondly, he did jurisdiction uh, last and merits first, which even at the time was wrong. And third of all, he made up a statute that didn't exist so he could strike it down um, so that Congress wouldn't care because they didn't care that he struck down a statute that didn't exist. All of that is F. Um, yet, and, and it's an amazing foreshadowing of what's to come with the Supreme Court. Um, now, there's a lot in Marbury that's good. Don't get me wrong. His discussion of the rule of law is brilliant and, and wonderful by any standards. But half the opinion would get an F on a student exam. I'm not the only law professor who thinks that. That is how constitutional law began in this country. And it's followed that course ever since. <laughs> that is a little uh, terrifying to know that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's so, true. So for the success, pardon me, for the success story, oh, say that three times fast, right? Um, <laughs> for the success story, uh, obviously throwing that uh, event sounds like a huge, huge success. And I am very, I'm just hearing you talk about it is very exciting. I love hearing people talk about things that, they enjoy, get like an empathetic sense of enjoyment myself. And hearing you talk about it, it, it clearly came off brilliantly and did a lot of good for the uh, legal community down in Atlanta. And in addition to that success that you enjoyed, um, my take on how you described um, uh, Scalia's reaction was, well, if he's going to kind of cede the point, that seems to be the only way he'd do it. Um, <laughs> and And... Do you get any kind of, uh, did you get any satisfaction thinking, all right, well, he wasn't ever going to agree with me, but this is kind of the closest I'll ever get to him saying, well, I was wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I was frustrated actually, because okay. I had a lot of students in the room and everything, and he was really misleading the public and the students. I, 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 didn't, I actually didn't finish that story, and that's my fault, and I'm sorry, and I apologize to those listening. The end of the story is <laughs> that night, I had to go home because of my relationship with my best friend and call him and disclose to him that in fact, Scalia and I had a confrontation, a personal <laughs> confrontation as he predicted, even though I was doing everything in my power to avoid that personal confrontation. And that was a very, very hard. And while my, my friend's reaction was, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it was very annoying that he was right. 
in a way he could not possibly have anticipated. <laughs> I mean, because there were 500 people there. I mean, there was like no chance I was going to have a personal confrontation with Antonin Scalia, assuming he didn't show up to the gun pen, which he didn't do. So that phone call was uh, very hard to make. On the success story thing, I do want to say, I think it would be unfair of me not to mention this during this podcast. Um, I am incredibly fortunate, and, and I'm not being overly modest here. My career took, I, I teach at a non-elite law school, Georgia State. I think we're a great law school. We're, you know, we're, we're ranked 60 to 70 out of 200. Um, not that I believe in rankings, sometimes even closer to 50. But um, I'm not at an elite law school. And I didn't go to elite. I went to Emory undergraduate, which is a great college, but not an Ivy League. And I went to Vanderbilt Law School, ranked somewhere between 15 and 20 every year. But again, not an elite law school. Um, and um, what I had written a whole ton of articles prior to 2010, and I was working on a book. But what changed my career was an, uh, a radio show I did with Dahlia Lithwick, who was one of my favorite Supreme Court commentators. Oh, she's um, great, yeah. Yeah, and a, and a friend of mine about the Affordable Care Act case in 2012, where I took the position, sadly, that Elena Kagan absolutely had to recuse herself from that case. Dahlia disagreed amicably. And after we hung up, she sent me an email saying, why don't you write that up for Slate? I don't, I don't agree with you, but it's interesting. Why don't you write it up for Slate? Um, and, and maybe I'll publish it. And I had never, you know, my career had been mostly law review articles and, and, and that kind of thing. And I hadn't really done social media yet. And so I wrote it up, she published it. And by law professor standards, it went kind of viral. Um, because I wrote it, the title was A Liberal's Lament, Why Elena Kagan Has to Recuse Herself from the Affordable Care Act Case. And that kind of got me um, integrated into not just Twitter, which I wasn't on before that, but um, all kinds of social media. And then I started writing op-eds you know, for, for Slate, for New York Times, for Daily Beast. The LA Times has been very kind to me and published over 15 of my op-eds which then led to more credibility, which then led to several other things, invitations from more elite schools, two books, and so on. I just want to point out that I view all of that not so much as a matter of skill, but as a matter of luck of being in the right place at the right time and writing the right piece. That piece led to a, a, a piece in the University of Pennsylvania um, Law Review where Sherilyn Eiffel, who's one of my heroes and the NAACP, the lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel and I had different perspectives on that case, but we ended up having dueling law review articles about it, which was a very prestigious thing for me, all of which wouldn't have happened were it not for that radio show, Dahlia's Invitation, and that Slate piece. Um, so I want to just say that luck is a huge element of um, my success. And, and rightly or wrongly, luck was required more for me and people like me than it would be for someone at Harvard or Yale, Stanford or Chicago. Um, and I'm sure that's the way the world works inside and outside of the legal academy. But it's kind of unfortunate because I have many, many, many friends at non-elite law schools who deserve as much or more attention than law professors at elite law schools, but one has to be very, very lucky and be in the right place at the right time to um, 
get that attention. So um, I do think, like in everything, a great deal of success has to do with luck. I appreciate that um, you are humble enough to um, say something like that. I think that you might be being a little bit too humble after reading uh, one of your articles because it's fantastic. Um, but I, I do see what you're saying about the success be, and the, you know, it's snowballing starting from a place that seemed pretty unlikely and yes. all that. And I hate ha when, you know, people like Jeff Bezos will call himself a self-made billionaire. And it's true what he's done has been remarkable ec economically, but, you know, he started off with a $300,000 loan from mommy and daddy. Um, right. So not, not to mention Donald Trump's several million dollar request. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want, but I, but I do want to make. I thank you very much for your flattering comments. I do want to make the point that I have more friends than I can count at non-elite law schools writing great stuff mm -hmm. that doesn't get the attention. Now it's better in the social media age, no question. But writing great stuff that doesn't get the attention it should because they don't have the same platforms, um, you know, and that's and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the idea of there being um, uh, schools that are considered elite versus not elite is, I mean, yeah, when you get to your like Harvard's and Yale's, okay, whatever. But, you know, the difference between, you know, the, say the uh, 50, uh, you know, between 50 and 200, that's, it seems pretty arbitrary in a lot of measures, like looking at U.S. world news and reports. Oh, well, we, we know that there's no statistical difference between yeah. schools that between 50 and 90 in U.S. news. Like that's a known thing. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the one thing that I like about uh, Judge Thomas, and I am loath to say it, but I do think it's a good thing he does, is he generally tends to have his clerks be from non-elite schools. Um, um, he doesn't more. No, he doesn't. But he does more than most. What I, what I thought you were going to say and what I agree with is Justice Thomas absolutely um does make a point of going to non-elite schools uh, and you're right occasionally hiring law clerks from non-elite schools way more than the other justices i give him credit for that by the way he is my least success story because he i'm not making this up he's from georgia mm -hmm. he has visited the university of georgia on numerous occasions including including after an occasion where the dean resigned because of protests about his visit and even after that, he went back to the University of Georgia. He's been to Emory. He's been to John Marshall, which is a law school in downtown Atlanta. And he has been to Mercer. He has never been to Georgia State. He refuses to come to Georgia State. He has an open invitation from a former Stevens clerk who is also African-American, who, who he likes and knows from her time working with Justice Stevens. She has given him an open-ended invitation to come to Georgia State anytime he wants. He will not do so. Maybe uh, Scalia told him that you're there and he didn't want to get caught um, not knowing about it. Um, <laughs> I have written very negative things about Justice Thomas. I never for one second believed he would care or think about it, except from a highly placed source, I am told that um, maybe my writings about him have um, played a role in that, which I find to be both very hard to believe and supremely sad. We're a state. We're, we're a state school in the state he grew up in, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, and we've invited him on his terms, and he still won't come. Ah, uh, that is very frustrating, and completely in line with everything I've seen in the news about his character. Um, yeah, now, not, not, not to put it in the best light, I was told that it's not so much out of anger or anything like that. 
he doesn't want to go to places where he may not get a, uh, uh, you know, a fair and open reception. So because of that, when we, the last time he was officially invited, we actually put in the letter <laughs> that you will be well received here. Um, there will be no, you know, you know, uh, we, we made clear that this was going to be a, a, a friendly reception. And by the way, I was planning on not being around at all. Um, he still won't come. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's very strange. The whole thing is, he, and he makes a point of coming to Georgia a lot. So something on the, this is a generalization, but I, I do think that it, in the wake of um, the former president sort of trying to create a cult of personality, it lands. Uh, I think on the left, we have room for dissent. Like a perfect example of that, Professor Siegel, is that is your article on, um, you know, how Kagan should refu- re- recuse herself, even though, you know, you believe in the same things and all that, because uh, on the left, we don't so much have the cult of personality going on. Whereas on the right wing, it seems like there's no room for dissent. And so, you know, somebody like uh, Thomas won't go to a place he doesn't feel like he'll be welcomed warmly. And that is very human, but he's a public figure and, you know, he makes decisions that affect all of us. So he should hear all opinions. So uh, that that always just confused me about sort of the left-right divide. Like, I I don't understand why on the right, there's no room for dissent, why it's all so lockstep. Um, Yeah, um, I have to say I'm not, I agree with you about Thomas 100%. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know if I agree with that generalization. So for example, well, what about the last administration? Do you think that held true for the last administration then? I think it was true for politicians, for sure. Um, no, I, I strike that. I, I don't, I, what, right, strike what I just said. I think for politicians, I'm not sure how politicians left and right navigate everything you just said. In the legal academy, I have friends like Jonathan Adler and Ilya Soman. Um, Clark Nelly is a Cato. He's not a law professor, but he's, he's, he's great. These are libertarians with whom I disagree a lot, but who in no way, shape or form uh, are in lockstep with the right wing of the Republican party. Um, Clark is amazing on issues of plea bargaining and, and qualified immunity. Ilya Soman uh, wants to defend Obergefell and maybe even Roe on originalist grounds, which is nuts, but it's not lockstep. Um, Jonathan Adler uh, on numerous Jonathan has a, a blind spot about the ACA, which I told him personally. But other than that, I think he's an honest, really, you know, true scholar who tries to do the right thing. So I, 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 I'm not sure I agree with your generalization. In fact, in fact, I might even say in the academy, the left is more in lockstep than the right. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, I have been trying. I love my law school. I've been there 30 years. I intend to retire there. You know, I've been approached a couple of times. I've always said no. Um, yet my, and so it's like a family, you know, you love your family, but your family has flaws. My family will not hire a conservative professor (laughs) and it's driving me nuts. And I'm always on the recruitment committee and I always make this speech that we don't, we used to have, but don't have any more, any public law outspoken conservatives, whereas we have dozens of public law outspoken liberals, including myself, um, they, they don't care and they don't, not interested. And I think that's true for much of academia. So I don't, I actually think it cuts the other way when it comes to academia. I think the left is more in lockstep than the right. So I'm going to answer that with a joke, but I, I couldn't agree. With, I, I agree with you, but I'll answer it with a joke is, uh, well, as John Stewart says, the truth and facts have a liberal bias. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like that. I just <laughs> But I, I think that's a fair point and an observation that uh makes a lot of sense. And I, I absolutely see that. Um maybe it is more uh politically based. Um I, I did enjoy my time in law school when there were uh left-right debates because it felt different than it being about politics. There was a framework involved, there were uh, facts, there were uh, it, it seemed less divisive to talk about the law than it did to talk about like, I like this, pol- this, this, pol- this politician's right. policy is better or whatever. So I was just asked by a fairly famous and public liberal whether I was still doing Federalist Society debates because I've written a lot about Federalist Society, including in the New York Times, um, about how they obviously support nominees for public office, but they deny that they do that, which is a real problem. And I've written a lot about that. And my answer was, yes, I still do fellow society debates because I love my students, my fellow society students. And because we don't have any conservatives on my faculty, I am there. Not only, not only am I on the board of, of the American Constitution Society in Georgia, not only am I currently my student chapter ACS representative, but I am the de facto fellow society representative because there are no conservatives to choose from. And I bring in people for debates. Um, but I also say that I won't do, and I'm doing a national Federal Society event on uh, the end of October. But but if I'm asked to do Federal Society things, I always say, thank you for the invitation. I'm flattered. I'd be more than happy to do it. But if you begin the program, as they used to do, by saying we don't take positions on issues or nominees for public office, I will politely say before I begin my remarks, that's not true. I have documented that it's not true. Um, and I'm sorry that you're saying that, but now let's have a great debate. Um, and, and I hope other liberal law professors take that same stance, meaning we should still for our students and for the public be willing to engage in the federal society debate kind of you know, system because they do good jobs with, they, they do a very good job with that. I also think we should never sit there and let them lie about what the national organization does. So that's how I feel about those issues. I think that's fair. And I, I, I do agree that there, uh, with the, you know, overall, uh, the underlying sentiment about under what you're saying, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the idea that open debate is important and the first amendment is important and we don't have to agree with each other, but we should be able to engage with each other. Um, do you 100%, think that's 100%, 100%. Yeah. yeah. 100%. And by the way, I just wrote about this last week in a civil manner. So I debated this guy, Richard Sander, a couple of weeks ago. He is the guy who created the mismatch theory for affirmative action, which suggests that people of color with lower grades, grades and board scores shouldn't be at elite schools because they don't do well there. I think it's one of the most pernicious theories I've ever heard. I think it is not well documented. Um, yet I was committed to, and so was he, and, his, and we had a very civil very um, uh, friendly debate on issues we really disagree about. And we found common ground. We both said that class is a big issue uh, here and we should spend more time you know, talking about class. We disagreed about how much time we should focus on race. I think a lot. He thinks a little. But the point is, it was a civil debate. I think the students enjoyed that. We had never met but there was in person, but there was an underlying warmth to the debate. And I think all of that is good. So when I debate people like Adler and Soman and, and Clark, my podcast, wherever, there's always this underlying current of respect that I think is unbelievably important. 
Yeah, because how else are you going to get to a, uh, a middle ground or yes. find yes. common ground in order to move forward together? <laughs> yes, and you know who understood that better than anybody? Really better than anybody. Justice William Brennan. <laughs> Justice Brennan wrote not so much in con law, but in federal courts, federal jurisdiction cases. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot of pretty conservative opinions, which is surprising to people who always thought Brennan was this you know, bleeding heart liberal and all that stuff. Um, but he knew that sometimes you had to give up. And you had to compromise and you, and you had to make choices. And of course, he famously told his law clerks that the most important thing to remember with the Supreme Court is the number five. It takes five votes to get anything done. Um, I agree with him about that, too. Um, but but Brennan really understood the nature of compromise. I think Kagan is trying to. Mm-hmm. I do. I think Kagan is making an effort, but she's doing so from a position of weakness. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to do. And it's difficult when you have someone like, you know, your Thomases of the world yeah. who really yes. don't have that attitude at all. So if you give Agreed. a little, they just are getting more of their way instead of giving you anything back. Agree 100%. Yep. Uh, to, to that end about the um, affirmative action debate, uh, the reason why I remember this is because Malcolm Gladwell actually used my, um, my undergrad an example when talking about that exact issue about yeah. whether or not admitting uh, – a student based on their um, race to a school that they might not have the test scores for under traditional rubrics, whether or not it was a good idea. And he used my school as an example of (laughs) my undergrad Hartwick College as an example of a school that is not so good, but that somebody can really thrive at. And the outcomes for the people who were really thriving at a not so good institution. Now, to be fair, that's not so good compared to Harvard and Yale and you know, or Penn State or something like that. So like, I'll take that. But it was just funny to be in that light. Um, But the outcomes for the Hartwick students in terms of, you know, their jobs and everything were actually better. Um, Of course, of course. And that being said, there is the extra layer of, well, how else are we going to penetrate these class barriers that you're talking about? Because so much of, uh, uh, of getting into the next, you know, class is based on, you know, who you know, where you went to school. Right. Well, that, that's that's one very persuasive argument. There are about 10 more, by the way. Um, I, w- I would just say the irony of this is almost too much to bear in that the leading opponent of affirmative action oh, on the court in our country's history would not be on the court self-admittedly because um, he, he wouldn't have gotten to Yale without affirmative action. And it's more than just I'm not talking about pulling the ladder out once you get on the, on the plane. That's not what I'm talking about. The reality is, if you are a conservative in this country, you very likely are inspired by, I think this is unfortunate, but inspired by Justice Thomas. And the symbolic nature of what he's, uh, what he's accomplished is obviously tremendous for people, of, uh, you know, for, for different racial groups. And he would not be in the position to be that role model, but it were not for affirmative action. So, I mean, it's just, it's almost too much to bear. It, the irony is crushing. I I, uh, I don't know how he gets up in the morning with all that ironic, ironic weight. <laughs> I do. I don't think he's very self-reflective about it. That's my position. <laughs> well, that's true. With his conflict of interest with his wife not bothering him. Why would that? Yes. <laughs> um, Professor Siegel, I'm so glad and grateful that you've taken the time to uh, share your success story and also so many wonderful opinions and facts and everything in between on constitutional law. This has been just such a, a joy and an honor to have you on my uh, humble little program. 
Um, and I, I won't take any more of your time. Um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, are, are there any um, pr uh, projects or articles that you have coming up that you would like to uh, promote? Um, well, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And, and you asked great questions. And I wish you all the luck with this podcast. I, you know, I one of my own that I started during COVID. <clears throat> I keep going back and forth whether I should keep doing it or not. But it, not because, I mean, it, it's not easy, but I really enjoy it. It feels kind of self-absorbed. But I do hope you continue with this. And uh, congratulations on this enterprise. Um, I have um, a piece coming out in the um, uh, Washington and Lee online law review that I've talked about publicly already, um, Justice Roberts, Institutionalism or Hubris. <laughs> and I think you can probably guess what my conclusion is there. Um, he is gravely misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, and I hope this little, it's not a long article, but it's, it's, it, it, it has a lot of data in it. I hope it moves the needle a little bit, just a touch to convincing people that he, he is an institutionalist in some ways, but what he leads with is his hubris. And I document that throughout the piece. Well, I, uh, after reading about your um, takedown, uh, not takedown, uh, just critical thinking about uh, Scalia and Thomas, I'm excited to read this one too. Maybe we can get a link to it and put it in the promotional materials of this show so that listeners yeah. can have a listen to that as well. It's on SSRN right now, but it'll be at the end of October, I think. But anyway, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it a lot. Professor Siegel, before you go, uh, what is the name of your podcast and where can people find it? Uh, it's called, I wrote a book called Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and its Justices are Not Judges. The name of the podcast is called Supreme Myths. Um, and uh, I've been very lucky to have just, you know, I've had guests ranging from Adam Liptak to Michael McConnell to Jonathan Adler, to Linda Greenhouse, to Corinna Lane this last week talking about the death penalty. Um, there are 35, I think, of them. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know how good they are, but I really enjoy talking to these people. I started because I was bored and lonely professionally during COVID. You know, I wasn't bored because I love my family and my close friends, but I was bored professionally. And I started this and I've been amazed that pretty much everybody I've asked has said yes. I have tried really hard to walk the tightrope between diversity, which is really important, getting, you know, voices from people who are not just Harvard and Yale chairs, and having conservatives and libertarians on for ideological balance, because it's very hard to find diverse, you know, diverse conservatives. It's not, that's not an easy task. There's like four of them in the country in con law. Um, so, um, you know, it's a wide range, it's a wide range of people. I, I have, as I said, had Jonathan Adler, Chris Green, Clark Nelly, um, Michael McConnell, and a bunch of other conservatives on it. And, um, which I'm proud of because I like those. Those are my favorite conversations, to be honest. When I agree with the person, like I had Corinna on, Lane on this week. I love Corinna. We agree on everything. So there isn't much, you know. <laughs> uh, um, I like having people who I don't agree with on and then having nice civilized debates. Um, and so I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's still, to be totally transparent, feels a little self-absorbed to me, but um, I'll keep doing it for a little while. <laughs> Professor Siegel, I, uh, I hope that you uh, don't aren't so humble that you stop because I'm sure it's fascinating to listen to. I've been grateful to uh, get the opportunity to listen to you today and hear about your story and hear uh, about uh, con law. You've really brought me back to the things that I really enjoyed about uh, law school and the law in general. So thank you very much for that. And I'm sure that uh, the listeners will all get a really great uh, experience out of listening to 
uh, your experience and your story. Well, thanks a lot and, and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Professor. You're welcome.